0: They say you are what you eat, but what does that actually mean?
1: Yummy, 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 I got love in my tummy, and I like I'm loving you. you such a sweet thing, good enough to eat thing and it's just a what I'm gonna
0: do. Good morning, and welcome to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. Today we're delving into the world of food to find out how it shapes identity, culture, and our bodies. Sweet, sweet chocolate mousse. Really, the only word for it is...
1: Welcome to the French Chef. I'm Julia Child. All you need to make an omelet is a hot fire, and you need a bowl... And you oh, boy, some
0: cookie butter, jar. Oh, boy, full of cookies. Me going to eat cookie. Me happy just to think of eating cookies. Those are three food icons. Homer Simpson, Julia Child, and Cookie Monster. But they raise the question, do we live in a food-obsessed society? That's one of the many food-related things I talked about with Fordham professor Jonathan Appels. He teaches a class called You Are What You Eat, The Anthropology of Food. So I just want to start by asking, and this might be the million-dollar question, but why study food? One of the reasons is because
1: there's not a lot of discourse on food. As my students just explained, people seem to be talking about food all the time, but they're not talking about its history. They're not talking about how polluted it is, whether it's really organic. Um, So I think food often has nomenclature. It has labeling. Sometimes we read the ingredients, but people aren't doing larger investigative work, where the food came from, what local actually means.
0: Do you think that's sort of a case of it's right under our noses all the time, and we sort of take it for granted. Why isn't there that larger discourse about it?
1: There is a kind of curious way of factualizing food in the way that I think we factualize our bodies. So I think we're in an extremely visual culture, so we tend to think a little more about after effects of
0: food than even digestion or elimination. So what does it mean to say the anthropology of food? Because it's a very general term, and I sat in on your class a little bit, and it seems like it covers a whole lot of different topics from economics to biology. So I'm just wondering specifically, what what do we mean when we say anthropology of food?
1: Historically, anthropology is one of the few disciplines that continue to think that bodies are important to study but also that food is an important part of that study Uh, and in that sense it's true that if you do a course on food if you teach a course on food that you're going to be bringing in all these sort of also non-anthropological questions because people are not having discourse about them in other places
0: does the class also go back and sort of trace the history of food and in terms of how it started out primitive and its evolution from there
1: we do we we look at the question of how different cultures historicize or do not historicize food and also when those historic when that historical knowledge has been erased why those traditions are erased in certain cultures and not in others mythology of what would be considered maybe primitive food or or ancient food or let's say, symbolic food or also fundamental food. So how do different cultures and time periods understand what is, as we might refer to the USDA,
0: basic food groups? I was wondering if maybe you could talk about one of the examples of a food's history being erased, which is something that you mentioned before.
1: We could certainly talk about indigenous food
0: practices in the
1: US. (laughs) And we could say that, let's say, for example, corn or indigenous corn to North America, what what has been historically in North America for a number of centuries, multicolored corn, now has almost no relationship to that history of how corn was grown here or maize. And the question of what actually is corn now? Because most corn now has been genetically modified percentage-wise. Most corn is, uh, corn is one of the highest in terms of genetic modification. It's primarily used for sweeteners, corn syrup, etc. So it's become primarily a sweetening ingredient. And by the time it gets to a movie theater, this thing that once appeared to be food, and have a relationship to perhaps even stability of a social identity or an individual identity within a culture, or even stability, athletic stability, let's say, to hunt for dinner or to gather one's dinner, that the physiological stability of your body is no longer being constructed out of that piece of corn. (laughs) Or it might be, but it's a more random relationship to that piece of corn. So that's not really an example maybe of a pure erasure, but it's certainly an example of a radical
0: transformation of a particular piece of food. That's really interesting. Um, Would you say that's almost something similar with, I don't know, something like pasta, which was invented by the Chinese? And a lot of people, especially over here in the States, would associate pasta with Italian food. Sure.
1: We we don't know in the same way we often don't know. I mean, in California, the eucalyptus tree was imported, and not everyone there knows that. And, and, you know, what foods, how do they get changed by culture mores and, and, you know, eating patterns,
0: religious patterns. The class title, You Are What You Eat, and reading the course description, just thinking about food and identity and how they're related, and that kind of, that was interesting to me. Can food also be gendered in terms of masculine and feminine? You know, can someone look at, I don't know, like a low-fat yogurt and say that that's feminine and a bacon cheeseburger and say that it's masculine and sort of ideas of identity through gendering food that way?
1: Sure. One of my students today was giving a presentation on the question of um, largeness of body in relationship to food or or let's say a a not as felt figure in relationship to food and saying that from a feminist standpoint in the research she'd done, she felt that women are usually faulted and problematized for their relationship to shape and the amount of food they consume. Whereas her argument, which I found compelling, was that men are not as often problematized in relationship to their body size in relationship to also the amount that they eat it's often she argued seen more in terms of the power and prowess that they're able to have um, and that it isn't really something maybe that they're responsible for so we get to that interesting question of gender and kind of responsibility for your body type and your body presentation
0: also thinking about food in terms of race and ethnicity because there are certain foods where one culture, it seems very normal for them to eat that, whereas it would be very foreign or even hard to comprehend for another culture. Oh, you eat that. How, why do you eat that? We don't eat that. Why do you eat that? You know? Do you think that those sorts of things are almost problematic because people have sort of closed ideas about what you can and can't eat? I know before
1: I started a macrobiotic diet, I wouldn't have had any idea what an umeboshi plum was or even miso soup or even mochi, but now these are my staples. And so I tend to carry my own food with me, um, which is sort of a very different idea than takeout to sort of bring along. But I think that in terms of just You know, as you say, something someone's not familiar with, once you start seeing how much food actually impacts your energy capacity, your sleeping patterns, your musculature, your digestion, your um, mental processes, your agility, then I think suddenly the kind of commonplaceness of, let's say, a hot dog becomes much less appealing, and then you begin to theorize how long is it going to be until the American Heart Association and the associations having to do with digestive ailments try to close down the Coney Island hot dog eating contest because it's obviously such a lethal thing to be doing to a body, to be stuffing food like that into the body. So, But I'm wondering if you had a particular question about a particular type of
0: food that you feel people are more resistant to yeah I think what I was getting at is are are there stigmas attached to certain food items because here in the United States I think um, we think of people eating dogs as you know that that's hard for us to wrap our heads around because a lot of people have dogs as pets but meanwhile here we eat a lot of beef where for someone in India that that that's hard for them to wrap their head around because of the religious practices so I was just wondering if you could talk about those kinds of stigmas that certain foods have attached to them. You probably remember the riots that went on in India
1: when uh, Indians found out that McDonald's was using some grease for its french fries that was from animal meat. Um, and that <laughs> that those were some pretty big riots. Um, and certainly, you know, we could go to China and you can have monkey brain for dinner. I mean, I guess I feel stigmatized all the time because you know I generally tend to have a one large bunch of dandelions, raw dandelion greens for breakfast every day. And even if I'm out socially and eating it, people don't understand why I'm eating this for my breakfast and how I could eat a whole large bowl of green dandelion leaves. Actually, in this culture, um, to not eat processed food, I think in this culture is a stigma. I mean, people think. People kind of like to make fun of my diet all the time because I don't eat much processed or any processed food, or I haven't had sugar since I was, since 1974, I think, 73, something like that. And it makes it hard to eat out because. Um, so this this question of stigma, you know, where is the stigma actually? But certainly, I'm trying to think if you have another thought of a, a particular food that you feel that there's a,
0: a stigma around. I'm gonna have to look up what it's called. I believe it's a French delicacy where you eat an entire bird or or it's, it's a songbird and you put it in your mouth with its beak and its feet and its eyeballs, everything, and you just eat it in one bite. And that is particularly attached to stigma because the traditional way that you eat it is you cover your head with a veil and you're at a dinner party and everyone puts this veil on their head and leans over and eats it so that no one can see you eat it. You know, like something like that 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 has stigma built into it,
1: certainly you know we we find parts of the world where people are eating certain kinds of blubbers and things that we just could not imagine eating but but obviously, people who travel are probably a much more open about these questions um, I think what 's maybe interesting in overall let 's say American culture is that there is um a sort of generally a resistance to thinking of things other than basic practices but perhaps people would argue that many cultures are that way.
0: This is Chris Williams on WFUV 90.7 and you're listening to Fordham Conversations. Today's show is all about food and why it's more than just something that gives us energy. We'll hear more from Jonathan Appels in a little bit, but first, I wanted to find out more about how we can preserve food culture. It turns out there's a project here in New York looking to do just that. The Museum of Food and Drink, or MOFAD for short, is all about celebrating food history and culture. They're hoping to set up a museum dedicated to food something that seems so obvious but hasn't been done before in New York. Last summer, MoFAD launched a Kickstarter to fund a traveling exhibit featuring a machine that makes puffed cereal. Now, they're working on opening a permanent location in Manhattan. I spoke to Emma Boast, program director at MoFAD, about the goals of the project. When I think of a food museum, I just sort of think of one of the challenges must be preserving the food, you know, because it's not like a museum where you can go and see artifacts or a painting that can sort of almost, if kept right, last forever because food, you know, it goes bad.
2: The real idea is not necessarily kind of an artifact or collections-based museum in the way that like an art museum is, but something more along the lines of, we often describe it as something like a you know a science center or a technology museum, where it's more about kind of like the experience and in this case, you know, offering little tastes of food along the way in any exhibit, you know, we're not going to be giving people a meal, that's what the museum restaurant or cafe is for, but definitely giving people the chance to taste whatever it is that they're learning about in that particular exhibition is important. Hence, at, you know, when we bring out the puffing gun to these street fairs, we give away little bags of cereal so that people can can try the product. It would be cruel not to do so because people are curious about it, but also it really adds to the the educational experience. So, you know, there's a logistical and kind of operational challenge there. Most museums don't have food and aren't making food in their galleries. But, you know, I think that we'll be able to to work around that and to make sure we choose exhibitions where the tasting components are things that can be served in small sample sizes or uh, easily prepared.
0: And I guess sort of related to that question I just asked is, how much of the museum Will or might focus on history rather than simply origins of food that we currently have?
2: History is definitely a huge part of it. I mean, just to, to go back to the cereal example, because it's one that I've thought about a lot and worked on a lot, um, there's a really fascinating backstory there, and it's actually pretty important to understand if you want to see how cereal got to be what it is today, because it started out as a basically a health food for these sort of Religious purists uh, in the kind of mid nineteenth century, particularly in the in the Midwest. Here now, it's of course predominantly sugary snacks marketed towards children. So, you know, tracing that evolution is extremely important to the story. It's you know, you can trace the production alongside that history and learn a lot more than you would just looking at one or the other narrative.
0: So, it, it sounds like the museum is really going to focus on foods that are universally. Eaten or universally known? P- you know, people aren't going to encounter things necessarily that they're not familiar with in terms of what the food is?
2: Well, not necessarily. So, for example, um, you know, again, cereal is our we thought it would be a good first exhibition because it is something that, at least in the U.S., most everyone is familiar with, hence has this sort of personal identification element associated with it, which is, I think, important in, for museums generally to focus on when they're planning exhibitions. It's informal education, and museum education is very much about kind of meeting people where they are, but then encouraging them from that point to kind of expand. So very different in that sense from kind of more traditional school learning approaches. Um, That being said, you know, we have a whole slew of ideas that center on looking at different kind of historical kitchens from cultures around the world, or street foods, for that matter, from around the world. So there will be opportunities for, you know, almost travel within the museum and learning about things like say, you know, insect meat that, you know, is not uh, not a part of our culture, but is uh, part of many others. So that's something we also don't want to overlook. We're not just the Museum of American Food or the Museum of uh, Snack Foods or something like that.
0: So it's really setting out to sort of be the go-to museum for all food and all drink. Is that correct? Precisely,
2: yes. Okay. It's, a, it's a pretty ambitious goal. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, You know, and there are many museums out there right now that um, focus on a particular food product. For example, um, in Japan, there are three ramen museums, um, but there's really not a place that looks at food in this more holistic global sense.
0: I appreciate you talking with me, and it sounds like a really great idea. It sounds ambitious, and I'm actually surprised that nothing like it exists yet. <laughs>
2: You know, the more support we have from people like you, the faster we'll be able to get there.
0: So, <laughs> Great. I wish you guys the best of luck. Thank you. To find out more about the project, visit mofad, M-O-F-A-D, dot org. Now, Fordham Professor Jonathan Appels and I continue our conversation about his class called You Are What You Eat, The Anthropology of Food. And we talked about this a little bit already, but the evolution of food from being the, what the primitive people ate, back cavemen times they'd kill an animal and eat it then we have you know we started cooking and using spices and sides and now we're in a time when a lot of our food has preservatives or artificial additives it's almost as if it's trying to create this ideal notion of what is food because it's not even some of it come doesn't even come from food it's it's you know you think of candy or something like a gummy bear like that's that doesn't occur in nature it's so like, what, what are we trying to do with that? Like, why, how, why has food gotten to this point where, where so much of it is artificial and add it to?
1: Well, certainly because food has become corporate. And it's, from a capitalist standpoint, right, it's, it's about sales. It's not about consumption or digestion or elimination. Or, or it's about consumption, but not food consumption. It's about consumption of a product, right? So I was really surprised when one of my doctors suggested, or maybe it was one of my acupuncturists, that I have some marshmallow when I was having some difficulty with my throats, but she didn't mean to eat a marshmallow. She meant the marshmallow tincture, which most people don't realize there's marshmallow tincture, which comes from the marshmallow plant. So marshmallow was actually something that you use this plant and you use it as a tincture for the throat and you used it with certain kind of respiratory illnesses. And then eventually the idea was, oh, well, let's just sweeten it a little to make it easier to use this tincture. And then it just got so sweetened that eventually it just became what we've gone now call a marshmallow. But I was shocked for the longest time that something that I understood in my upbringing as being just piece of candy, actually had an origin as a medical remedy in its plant form. A Dorito, for example. You know, what is a Dorito, really? You know, and, and what? why is it that in this culture we think that the question in the food store is kind of the economy pack or the giant pack of potato chips. I mean, these, you know, sort of the six pack of potato chips. There's no discourse there. There's no knowledge there. There's no discussion. There's no, there's nothing there. Not only is there no food left, the, the food nutritive value is so, has so disappeared. But I think you're basically asking the question about the industrialization and the corporatization of food so that it, it often has become something that is marketed quite well. I ask students often to try to eat their breakfast cereal without looking at the box of cereal. So how good is it without that picture of the milk splashing on the raspberries that aren't actually in the box of cereal? Uh, And I'm very interested now in kind of the question of what it means to be eating the image of the food. So what does it mean to be eating the image of the cereal as opposed to the cereal itself? What does it mean to take the pizzazz away from the marketing label on the food and just try to eat the thing that you're eating? And it's it's not as easy to do that because because part of what we want with that food is, is the image. And, and that's understandable because that's part of why we bought it. But of course, if you start eating more directly from the farm... You know, or from the farmers you meet at Farmer's Market, you start getting a whole nother series of tastes and, 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 and feelings in your body. And that was something else that one of my students was saying today in class was that have we lost the capacity, you know, or, or is it residual? Is it still there to actually taste basic vegetables and basic fruits.
0: I'm curious as to whether you think we live in a food obsessed society. And the reason I ask that is we have entire networks, you know, the food network and all these reality shows about food and cooking food. And, you know, you go on BuzzFeed and sometimes there's entire lists that are just like pictures and gifts of cheeseburgers or or something like that. Do you think that that's sort of the next step from the commercialization of food is, is that sort of obsession surrounding it.
1: I agree. What we're now consuming, you know, we, we are obsessed with the question of food. But again, I don't see much discourse. I don't, I mean, I know some radical organic farmers. I know some, you know, people who only eat at organic restaurants like me. But I don't, I don't see people really talking about the breadth and the depth of issues uh, you know so again this corporatization of 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 not just food but of food sources and water sources uh, you know supporting food industrialization and and the sort of invention of flavor and taste there's a lot of thinking and and awareness to be done
0: obesity is is a really big problem in america There does seem to be, at least from my point of view, there seems to be an increased awareness about the issue and trying to solve it. But what do you think is, where do we go from here? Do you think that obesity will continue to increase and be a problem? Or do you think people will start to become more health conscious?
1: Obviously, this is a huge problem, um, and it's even more of a problem because everything has become so technological that this whole concept of labor-saving devices. I mean, you know, sometimes people like to walk upstairs. Why do we always have to take the escalator? You know why? You know why do we have to wait and go to the gym for for doing that work? Um, uh, yeah, obesity is 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 a major problem um, not only because a lot of the food we're getting is not real food, but also because the medical costs are just immense. What, what it's going to cost to to take a higher percentage of obese people and keep them healthy and keep them out of hospitals more is just the uh, um, there's no this economy can't afford that. Do I think that's going to Im- improve? Do I think people are I mean, I hope so. I mean, I think... I mean, I'm very interested in the fact that here at Fordham, there's a number of students who have different languages. I often have a number of students who speak Arabic, a number of students who speak Spanish, certainly, a number of students, a few who speak French, some African languages, sometimes some Korean, a couple Asian languages, Chinese languages. But what I'm really interested in is that almost none of my students seem to share that second language if they have one. But what I found is that... As a choreographer, of course, I wanted to do a little more movement so we're not sitting in a class for three hours or two and a half hours, so I've been doing more yoga and qigong. And what I'm really interested in is that yoga actually has functioned in my mind as a second language. That is to say that most of the students, I'm not going to say they're yogis, but they know a little yoga. So I'm now interested as somebody who has a PhD in comparative literature, I'm now interested in this question of, yoga as a second language is something that people become very familiar with and that that it's a discourse language now for us in the classroom or certainly in my classrooms. So that that makes me hopeful, right? That makes me hopeful because it means that as soon as I start doing a little bit of body movement in the classroom, all these wonderful students with these great minds are like, oh, I'm stiff and I can't move that. I haven't moved that in so long and oh, my bag. I'm so interested that the kind of mental elegance is met with this very simplistic movement, a kind of resistance, initial resistance to simplistic movement and then a great appreciation for just mild stretching. And so I, in that sense, I see that there's hope, but I also know that um just you know the the gmo problem the radiate radi- radiation problem the the amount of chemicals and toxicity in food i mean the fact that it's so hard to keep foods from being gmo because the seeds are blown from a gmo field into a non gmo field and i mean there's just there's a lot of immense difficulties now that I think are coming and arriving at the same moment that people are just starting to realize, yeah, I don't really want to be obese and I'd like to do something about it, but I'm hooked on this food. But I also have yoga as a second language and maybe I can do a little more of that. So I see some very positive signs In at the same time that I see some large corporatized issues that are going to take immense work to counteract
0: i want to get back to the idea of you are what you eat and by this i want to ask can eating certain things sort of change who we are and and i'm not talking about body type here i'm just talking about maybe sense of self or personality you know can food have that effect on us
1: certainly one of my issues having been somewhat reactive personality for a number of years of my life the foods that I eat now are much less swing oriented not sort of sweets to salt basically much more tonic and certainly not toxic and so I'm very aware that The kinds of foods that I eat now are basically tonifying and we could say mellowing. So even though I'm not a particularly mellow person, I'm hundreds of times more calm than I was five and ten years ago and much less reactive. So if somebody gives me a piece of news that I really don't want to hear or, you know, I hear that someone I'm close to died, you know, I'm really able to let that come into my consciousness without having a quick reaction historically chinese mothers have known very well what foods to give their children so that their children don't react and don't cry that much and i wouldn't say that's what we see in america right so what we see in america is we have a lot of crying kids right and they're pretty loud and you know one reason they're pretty loud is they're being given a lot of salted and sugared foods that are something you want to scream about, right? But we're not reading it that way, right? So I think it is really interesting when you start realizing on a global scale the kind of wide differentiation of notions of diet in relationship to upbringing, in relationship to daily existence, in relationship to ontology. I don't necessarily think about my diet so much anymore, or or as Foucault calls it, dietetics, in terms of, pleasure or or not. I mean certainly I'm aware of those things. I live in America, right? I live in New York City. But those don't feel as important to me as they used to because I'm I'm aware that I can have a responsive relationship to what I'm eating in relationship to the cardio work I do right before I eat or the teaching I'm doing before or after I eat. And and I must say there's there's something quite wonderful about a sort of balance of your body with the environment that you're living in and the climate and the atmosphere and the, the wind direction and the amount of moisture in the air and the wind direction in relationship to the amount of moisture and the food that you're eating, et cetera. That, that makes things um, a very such a high degree of pleasantness that you almost might call it pleasure, but it's really a pleasure of being in the world. Um, it's an ontological pleasure rather than, should we say, Pleasure for pleasure's sake, or maybe pleasure for desire's sake, or, or just what we have historically maybe called food pleasure.
0: Yummy, 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 I got love in my This has been Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7. And don't worry if you've missed a show, they're all available to stream at WFUV.org or to download as a podcast. You can also like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter. Stay tuned. George Bodarchy and Cityscape are next on WFUV. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Chris Williams.